This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. My guest today is Gracie Olmsted. She's a mom of two and one of the best writers I know. Gracie writes about things that don't get enough airplay, community, faith, farming, localism, and books. She's regularly published in the New York Times, among other places, and her perspective on all things politics and policy is refreshing. I learned a lot from her about how to fairly approach an opinion you don't necessarily agree with and dig a little deeper into why someone might believe what they do. She's just written a book, her first, and it's coming soon. This is one of the most thoughtful people I've met. Enjoy this interview with Gracie Olmstead. All right, Gracie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I am very honored to be asked to be on. Well, it's been long overdue. I've been thinking about having you on for months now, so I'm glad we're finally doing it. Um, to get started, uh, just to tell a little bit about yourself, you're living in Virginia with your husband and your two daughters, um, but you grew up in rural Idaho, which is really interesting because I don't know many people who are from there or have even been there. So I would <laughs> love to hear a little bit about um, your life now, how old are your daughters and, and all of that, but then also a little bit about your life growing up in Idaho. For sure. Um, so my daughters are four and one and a half. The oldest is already a little bookworm and my definite, uh, definitely my introverted little girl. And then the younger one is all spunk and pizzazz and energy. <laughs> so um, the combination of the two of them is pretty fun. But yeah, they and my husband and I all live in Northern Virginia. My husband was in the Air Force for a few years, and so he was stationed out here up until his enlistment ended. Um, but we've stayed out here since then just because we have a lot of family and connections in the area. But I grew up in rural Idaho, as you said. Um, uh, my grandfather and great-grandfather were farmers, and we grew up in a town of about 3,000 people, uh, a town that was definitely a farm town in the past, a little less so now. It's turning into more of a commuter town, but there's a history and a legacy there of agriculture, and so I think that's one of the reasons why, as I've gotten older, I've written a lot about farming and agriculture and rural America, as as you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do, do you miss living in that kind of area? I do. I really do. I wouldn't mind moving back at some point if the doors were ever open for us to do that, just because Idaho is such a friendly, beautiful um, unique state. It is full of the most gorgeous mountains and forests. And a lot of people haven't known about it. It's funny because its population is growing very rapidly. It's part of kind of this mountain west area that's been attracting a lot of newcomers. And um, so there's lots of beauty in the, in the state that we get to share now. And I, I think that's a good thing. It means it's changing in ways that make me sad. But I also think the growth might be important to the state in the future. So, yeah, a lot of people growing up who I met in this area just had never met anyone from Idaho, never been to Idaho, but that's changing actually surprisingly fast. Uh, it's funny because I, you know, I'm from Indiana. And when I tell people that that aren't from here, they get confused about they're like, Indiana, Iowa, Ohio, like they can't distinguish between what's what in the Midwest. So in a way, I sort of get that. <laughs> um, so what is it about, I would love to talk just a little bit about small town America where you come from. What do you think that people are missing when they don't have that experience? Or what does small town America bring to someone's life that maybe a lot of people aren't thinking about? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because in our time, provincial is often seen as a negative term, right? There's this sense that small town America, anything within a sp specific um, 
population that's on the smaller side of the spectrum is backwards, is uh, dying out or should die out even, uh, there's oftentimes a sense that the places that are full of culture and life and diversity are cities and that small towns don't offer the same things. But one thing I've learned as I've studied my community where I came from and even the community I live in right now is just how much um, beauty and intricacy and mystery and brokenness are in these places and they have stories to tell. They have principles to teach us and they need committed, dedicated, loving citizens just as much as New York City or San Francisco do. So I think there's some important work to be done to showcase to people just the beauty and the intricacy of some of these places and to help them understand their worth and their dignity, that these aren't places to kind of disdain as flyover America or nowhere, um, middle of nowhere towns, but that they really have this important role to play in our national politics, in regional health and economic vibrancy. Uh, there is so much there that we do not talk about or understand well enough. And that could be because a lot of journalists come from coastal cities. And so perhaps they don't have that experience with small town America. It could be because our politics are very much focused on uh, Washington DC and surrounding powerhouse cities. Mm -hmm. It could even stem from the fact that we have a lot of economic consolidation in what we call winner take all cities, just this principle that a lot of the jobs, a lot of the growth, pretty much all of the capital is focused in a few cities in America. Um, all of these things draw our attention, our funds, our social awareness, our activism away from rural America and small towns. And I think we could do a lot of work to decentralize uh, some of that focus and to bring it back to places that really, really need it now and in the future. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think that gets lost in the conversation is, you know, so much of our food and so many of the things that we enjoy as Americans come from some of these small towns, some of the farming communities. Do you think that's something that gets lost Oh, definitely. Um, one of my favorite writers, Wendell Berry, has talked a lot about this idea of economic extraction, that the countryside in rural America are the source of a lot of the resources that cities run on, whether it's food, whether it's uh, various energy sources, uh, even the youth of rural America, people like me, um, are raised in a small town and then get extracted to the big city. And so a lot of rural America is experiencing what's known as brain drain because a lot of its college educated young people never go back once they graduate. And so there is an argument to be made for the fact that this should be more of a symbiotic giving relationship rather than rural America just, you know, bleeding out all mm -hmm. of its resources, all of its wealth, all of its um, health to cities, that there should be a relationship in which the cities also give back to the countryside, that, that they work together to cultivate more of a holistic health so that we don't see these rural areas suffering to the degree that they have been over the last few decades. Uh, I didn't prepare you for this question, and we can take it out if you don't want to answer it, but um, what are your thoughts, or do you have thoughts on the Electoral College and how people in those con communities may be affected if that were to be banished someday? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have the understanding of constitutional law probably necessary to answer it really well. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely understand the frustration of Americans who saw that the popular vote went to a candidate who did not actually win um, because of the electoral process. There's that sense of frustration that, but they got more votes, right? This mm -hmm. is the, but I do think that we would be wrong not to consider the reasons why the system was set up as it was in the first place. And also to consider the fact that there is this imbalance that we have on the scales in terms of voice recognition, prestige, power. Um, and it's not true that rural America is the only group that can be disenfranchised in our political process. There's a lot of 
voters uh, across America as part of different groups that can be disenfranchised, whose voices can be muted for the purpose of political gain. So, um, and I think there's even things like gerrymandering that we've seen Mm -hmm. really hugely impact uh, perhaps the justice of the process. So it's not a question I don't, (laughs) I feel like I can answer very well, just because I can see arguments on both sides, honestly. And um, I almost feel like it would be good for me to leave the debate to other people to debate more fully until I form my full opinion on it. If that yeah, no, that I think that's a great answer. And just so much of that conversation is just very partisan. And I think a lot of times people are being a little bit dishonest on both sides. Um, when they're talking about it, when it comes to, you know, the current election cycle and how much they want their person to win and what it would take to do that. So I do think it's an interesting conversation, though, and one worth having. And I I also can understand where people are coming from on both sides of the aisle. Um, So, Gracie, you are one of my favorite writers. I don't know if you knew that, but you are. Um, I just (laughs) love your op-eds. Your pieces are just so beautifully written. Um, Even when you're just, I, I loved that piece that you wrote for the American conservative about feasting. I just like was in love with it. And, you know, it was just about food, but it was just the way that you're able to bring uh, the words to life and what you're talking about in such a really profound way. Um, So I would love to hear a little bit about your professional and your writing background and how you got to where you are now with what you're doing with writing for the New York Times and writing a book and all of those things. Well, you are very kind. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> it doesn't usually feel beautiful, at least in process. <laughs> um, I So I graduated with a journalism degree, and I started working for the American Conservative straight out of college, which was a huge gift to me as a young writer, because even up to that point, I had seen some trends through the internships I'd had and other experience I had had with journalism in uh, the larger Washington, D.C. area and throughout the nation that seemed to suggest that a lot of editors wanted clickbait. They wanted something catchy. They wanted something controversial that would get people to click on the headline and read the story and be outraged enough or interested enough to share it. Um, I'm sure you've probably observed this a little bit. Yes, absolutely. And what I loved about working for the American Conservative is that I think one of the first or second pieces I wrote for them, uh, my supervisor came back to me and said, I really like this, but I think it needs to be a little more thoughtful, a little more nuanced. I think you could bring in some arguments from the other side more. And I remember just sitting back and thinking, this is so refreshing. I have never had an editor ask me to be more thoughtful, more considered, um, more prudent in how I in how I write. And so my experiences there continued in that vein of encouraging as much kindness, really, in how I wrote as possible. And so um, that was a that was an instinct that I already had and craved, but I think it had already started to um, be beat back a little bit by the editorial supervision I had had up to that point. And so that experience there really helped me to cultivate a a voice that um, I hope is gentle and thoughtful and fair. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my biggest goals with what I write is just to make sure that whoever reads it, whatever background they come from, whatever they believe and vote for, that they will feel that the article is honest and fair and gentle with their views as far as I can. Um, And so anyways, that was a great experience to have. And then I worked a little bit for the Federalist for a while as a managing editor. And then as my daughter, my oldest daughter got older and I was pregnant with my second, I decided to step more into this freelancing role, which has been wonderful for the flexibility it provides and for my ability to kind of sculpt a schedule that fits around the lives of my children uh, for as long as they are the age that they are. It's it's hard when news is 24-7, but children are also (laughs) 24-7, especially very little ones. And so I felt like I was going to have to choose and I, I wanted to be able to choose them for the age that they're at right now because these years don't last forever. So yes. anyway, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, we're in the same same position there as I recently uh, left a full-time job and I'm now 
doing some freelancing, also working on with some clients, um, but only working part time so I could be with my kids more and uh, who are the same exact age as yours, four and one and a yeah. half. So that's so funny. I love that. Uh, so when it comes to your freelancing, do you have particular goals that you try to meet or what is your mindset around how you're pitching or how many pieces you want to get in a, a set period of time? Just curious um, how you navigate that. Well, it keeps changing. Um, you know, when I first started, my goal was to try and make a specific amount of money per year to help you know, pay the mortgage and support my family. And I still would like to do that. But one thing I've realized is that um, freelancing honestly doesn't pay super well. Uh, it's <laughs> something that I do because I love to write and because I care about a lot of the ideas that we're talking about right now in our political conversation, mm -hmm. not because I think it's ever going to make me rich. Right. Um, and, and one thing I noticed is that if I were trying to fulfill a specific quota per month in order to make a certain amount of money per month, um, I would oftentimes start to get a little desperate and write pitches that I didn't necessarily mm -hmm. care about to the degree that I felt I should care about them if I was going to throw them out into the internet for people to read. Right. So what I'm figuring out right now, and it's an ongoing process, is how to balance those things, how to balance the need to support my family and justify, you know, the occasional babysitting and help I get in order to, you know, do this and trying to make sure that I stay true to what I believe that I don't write things that I later look back on and think, oh, that was really half-hearted or even um, not researched as well as it should have been. And and just try to make sure that what I write, I truly believe in. Because if you're writing columns or op-ed pieces or or essays that have some sort of a, an opinion to them, I, I don't think that we should be doing those just out of some desperate desire to keep up with whatever is going on in the 24-7 news cycle. I just have noticed that, you know, for instance, let's say the topic of the day is what's going on in Iran. It's easy for people to write 300, 500, 800 think pieces on what they think should happen that might all be uh, worthless the next day, you know, depending on what's happening that week. If we were all able to take a few steps back and write things over a longer period of time with a little more research and thought behind them. I think we actually might be able to produce journalism that's worth more to Americans, you know, years down the road, as opposed to just instantaneous think pieces every instant that the president tweets something out. Um, perhaps there's still room for that, but I think it can also just bog down the conversation a little bit. So anyways, I'm just trying to figure out, and I'm still figuring it out, what rate at which I want to be writing things, how long to take to kind of consider and research things before putting together my pitches, and um, how to make sure that as I balance those things, I'm also making money. <laughs> yes. Well, it's so, it's interesting that you say that about, you know, the more thoughtful journalism, because I come from a world where uh, the world of, you know, the 24-7 breathless op-ed. And so um, when I recently started to do more freelancing, um, you know, I found some opportunities in, you know, more thoughtful journalism and the American conservative is one of them. And mm -hmm. so I wrote a piece and, you know, it turns out it's going in the print magazine and I won't see it published for two months or something. And it seemed like so long to wait, you know, to see something mm -hmm. I'd written um, then published um, in print two months later. But at the same time, it it kind of takes the pressure off as you're writing to know that like this really is going to be something that matters more than, you know, what what you would put up like this afternoon, which you see so much of that. Um, so I, I totally agree with you there on, on the need for more thoughtful, um, taking a step back type of writing. Now, what is your sort of process from, I love to hear your process from idea to your, say you're doing the dishes and all of a sudden you have a spark like you're like oh that's interesting like what's your process to from that to seeing it published um in the newspaper mm. oh that's such a good question I think it varies on the idea so sometimes the idea will come for instance as I'm listening to a podcast about what's happening in the news right now and I might have a sense of how um how 
tight that turnaround is and also how long it will take for that piece of um, idea or the article itself to be, uh, I guess the word you could use is ripe, you know, how mm -hmm. long for it to come to full fruition. And so if it's a tight turnaround, then I will try to put together, you know, a three to four sentence long or even a paragraph long pitch kind of laying out the ideas and the research I have already done or will do on on the pitch and then I'll send it off right away and then if I hear back from the editor pretty quickly which I usually do then I have a sense of what the timeline is whether I need to get it finished that day or by the next day or maybe use the weekend to finish it up it it kind of depends usually on who I pitch it to, um, what timeline they might like to have. Um, so for instance, when I've written things for the New York Times, they generally prefer, and I love this, that I take the weekend, you know, and really give it as much depth as possible. Um, if I write for a publication that's maybe a little more bloggy in how they put stuff out, then, you know, usually a 48-hour turnaround is more what they might like just to fit with, of course, the the news cycle. Um, sometimes I'll have an idea though that is just a little more um, idea-based, a little bigger picture, maybe something that's less connected to a specific news event and more to a series of things that I've been thinking about, mm -hmm. whether that's something going on in rural America or something related to technology usage or education policy um, or the environment. And then it's funny, I'll take months sometimes just thinking about it while I sweep the floor or do my dishes or reading articles about it when I have the chance um, and just kind of thinking about what is it about this idea that I want to convey to people? Why does it matter? Um, how can I write about this in a way that will really be compelling to people in a way that it might not be otherwise? And like I said, it depends on the idea, but I still have a handful of them that I've been thinking about for probably over a year now. But <laughs> I'm just I'm just not ready to pitch anything on them yet. They matter so much. I just want to take my time. And thankfully, I don't feel like there's any rush. So I'm just kind of waiting for the right venue, the right style, the right idea to kind of push them over the edge and have me write a pitch. Now, have you done much long form or have you, I've, I've mostly seen shorter things that you've written. Have you done long form? Yes. So I've done a lot of long form for the American conservative. Um, I wrote a piece for them last year on economic consolidation in the agricultural seed industry, which mm -hmm. before you yawn, <laughs> fascinating I thought <laughs> I really enjoyed writing that piece but that was a lot of research into kind of how we cultivate seeds in America how we used to cultivate seeds and how it's changed and it has changed in drastic huge ways and so that was a really fun piece to write for me at least and then um, I also wrote a piece for them last year about uh, suburbanization in the Western United States. And I kind of pulled together some various facts about suburban booms and their impact on um, the ecology and the environment of the places in which they happen and kind of compared them to the writing and thought of an old explorer and scientist and renowned thinker named John Wesley Powell, who first explored the West back in the 1800s and who advocated for specific types of settlement and development based on the geography and the arid nature of the West. And so I was just wanting to ask some questions about, you know, have we forgotten that the West is desert? And should we consider that more in how we develop it just because we want to conserve and protect what we have there? And oftentimes, throughout America, we just have much more of a consumptive attitude to how we build. And that consumptive attitude can have bad consequences anywhere. It can have bad consequences in Indiana. It can have bad consequences in Vermont. But I think it can have especially bad consequences in Utah and Arizona and um, even Idaho, where I come from, just because the the landscape is different, the water availability is different, and um, how we build impacts those things. So that was one of my favorite pieces that I got to write last year. And it was a much, much longer piece. <laughs> yes. Um, how have you dealt with 
rejection? I mean, all writers that are pitching get rejection sometimes. Um, what's been your sort of process with that in the past? Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been rejected so many times, uh, <laughs> so many times. And I think that uh, it's important to learn from it to kind of say, okay, why was this rejected? And how does that help me pitch something to these people again in the future? Um, I think I've learned certain places will reject things based on their um, relevancy to the 24-7 news cycle. So some places, if you pitch uh, an article based on something that it's a couple weeks old, they're not going to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, which in that case, that gives you an opportunity to say, okay, well, now I know next time to really be on top of sending them that pitch right when this happens, but also to think about that original idea you had and consider how you might tweak it in order to be more of a big picture concept that you could then pitch maybe to a magazine or to something that's willing to take a longer form look at that issue. Uh, just because your pitch doesn't work at the first place doesn't mean necessarily that it's a bad pitch. You just might need to give more time and thought to make it um, a bigger idea. So, but, but I mean, it completely depends as well. It might be something that just has a very short timeline. Um, another thing I've learned is to save that idea if it's related to an anniversary and come back to it the next year. You know, if you have an idea related to Mother's Day, if you don't make an intern for this Mother's Day to save that idea for next Mother's Day or whatever it might be. So I think um, using rejection to learn more about the places that you're pitching to, for one, but then also learning about what your ideas might be lacking in or how you can repurpose them is important and something I'm still learning all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I find that, you know, sometimes it's almost it's intimidating to send in a pitch or whatever, but I always learn so much from a rejection, especially if someone offers you even a sentence of feedback just to, you know, give you something uh, to learn from. And yeah, I I totally agree. It's like the more that you can get rejected, the more that the more that you learn. And it's uh, it's a really interesting process. Uh, Something that you started recently is a monthly newsletter. Uh, newsletters have become sort of the newest trend for writers, I feel like, or just the newsletter industry has taken off in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. So how did you decide to start it? And um, how are you sort of making it stand out um, amid all the many emails that people are receiving every day? Well, I actually, this was one of those ideas that I had for years before I actually implemented. Um, Oh, I think that I first got the idea for this newsletter before my oldest daughter was born. Wow. Uh, Probably four or five years ago. And I wanted to create something that um, emphasized place and community, agriculture, and various embodied practices like cooking and gardening, um, things that I write about and care about and that my readers seemed to really care about. One thing I had received in terms of good feedback from editors in the past was that they liked my Twitter feed. They liked kind of the set of news that I tended to aggregate on there. And they thought that it created kind of this really unique and interesting fusion of topics. And so I latched onto that and I started to think, well, maybe I can, instead of just throwing all these links out on Twitter all the time, think about curating them into a product that would offer up kind of the best of the best each month on that set of topics, that fusion of ideas. And in a way that's hopefully also kind of lovely to look at and refreshing in its content to readers. And um, I, I just wanted to offer something that connected ideas and policies and philosophy to particular specific places and people and and issues of ecology even and to do it in a way that was hopefully fun (laughs) so that's been kind of the inspiration behind it and I took several months working on the design what the topics would be um, the people that I would include this episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, 
our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And then it's just going to be an ongoing process of perfecting it, but people have really liked it thus far. And I think one of my favorite things about it is that I have readers regularly email me paragraphs of their thoughts on whatever topic I might have discussed in the newsletter or articles I shared. I have had people share poetry that came to mind, personal life stories, habits they've started with their kids. And it has been so encouraging to me as a writer to just have this um, series of new connections springing up around the newsletter. So I've really enjoyed doing it thus far, and I hope people will continue to enjoy it. Well, I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely a subscriber. And one thing that I love about it is that you're always referencing some really beautiful pieces of writing, really awesome essays that I never would have come across otherwise. Like there's been a couple uh, websites that you've linked to that I had never heard of that are, you know, just dedicated to beautiful essays. Um, So my question is, and I have this problem because I want to read everything. I'm just, I'm a voracious reader. I I probably read a book a week and um, I want to read also the stuff online. You know, I try to, but I end up like just reading the Atlantic some weeks because I just don't have time to read a lot more. Um, And it's my favorite, but how do you find these pieces? How do you allocate your time in sort of finding those gems um, and then and then delivering them to the world. Mm. Well, the fact that you read a book a week is insanely incredible to me. I'm I, a very fast reader, so I always say that. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, well, I think I found a series of people who I trust to send me good stuff, who I oh, always good. follow up on or look at. Um, and then also a series of sites that are, are really helpful. I, I follow the best people on Twitter. They help mm-hmm. me find a lot of stuff. That's um, true. I also have appreciated, uh, so the Front Porch Republic is a little news website that I've always appreciated and loved. And um, one of the editors there, Jeff Bilbro, will send out a list of links that he's read in a given link many of which I will steal for the newsletter because they're just so good. Um, Arts and Letters Daily, AL Daily, is a great resource for finding really thoughtful, interesting, long-form journalism about a set of topics that are um, maybe literary, maybe philosophical, historical, stuff that's just very unique, and I really loved that. I also often do link to The Atlantic. I I have really appreciated a lot of their articles. I have a few agricultural sites that I really appreciate, like Civil Eats, that always has really beautiful, thoughtful writing about agriculture. Um, Let me see. I'm trying to think if there are any other big ones that come to mind off the top of my head. Um, Yeah. And I think, too, if you do a lot of Googling around a specific set of topics that you're interested in, which I often do as I'm kind of researching my own stories, sometimes you discover things that might even be several years old, but they're just really good. And so when I do that, whenever I do that, I'll save it for a future newsletter, because um, one of the things I emphasized when I started it is that the stories I would be sharing, the essays I would be sharing wouldn't necessarily fit within the time relevance of the 24-7 news cycle, that I wasn't focused on just sharing new stuff, but that I wanted to share good stuff. And so if it was a month old, if it was five years old, it, it might still make it in there just because I want people to be able to continue conversations and focus on old ideas, even as we talk about new ones, um, to not have just this insane fixation on whatever's in the bubble right now, because I think it can really cheapen 
the ability to have good conversations and to think deep thoughts. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of, you know, because there was one point where I was really, you know, I want to have an idea just like right on the on the on top of you know whatever breaking news has been. And ever since I sort of let go of that, um, it's been very freeing because it really takes the pressure off to like come up with the most brilliant thing you can think of within five minutes. And um, I totally agree with you on, uh, you know, finding those old pieces of writing that are so good because it's just like people put their heart and soul into those things. And, um, you know, books are still on the shelves, right? You can still find a book, but it's harder to find a great piece of long form writing. And so I love that you're kind of like unearthing those and bringing them back to life when you find really good ones. Well, thank you again for subscribing. I do appreciate it. And um, hopefully it will continue to improve as a product as I kind of try things and work on it. Yes. Uh, Okay. I want to ask you about what you kind of touched on earlier about making sure that you're respecting um, the ideas and opinions of those you may not agree with when you're writing about it. Um, And obviously, you know, the big buzzword in the past couple of years has been polarization. We're so divided. There's so much um, animosity from one side to the other. Um, What do you think or how do you think some of that um, is being cleared up or, or some of that is being addressed in a positive way by some people? And do you see any hope that we will one day not be so polarized? Mm. That's such an interesting and difficult question. (laughs) (laughs) I, so I have been very blessed to have grown up in very different places in the United States and to have spent time with very different groups of people. And, um, I think that's a gift in the sense that it has helped me grow in empathy for groups of people who I may otherwise never have met or understood or conversed with. It has helped me kind of expand my understanding of policies and politics that as a child, I probably would have dismissed out of hand or as a teenager or a college student even just never would have given a second thought to. Um, And I have really appreciated the way in which I have seen a lot of the stereotypes around certain classes of Americans, um, certain voters and uh, parties just kind of collapse and fall in on themselves as you begin to see the, the nuance and the detail of every unique person and their beliefs. And my hope is that as some of those stereotypes fall away, that we will understand each other better and just show a little more respect to each other. We're never going to all all agree. We are going to disagree. We're never going to all agree, nor should we necessarily. I think that there is a sense in which politics involves good, thoughtful, civil argument, and that oftentimes through that process, we grow as human beings uh, in our empathy, in our virtue, and hopefully what we offer to people at the end of that process is a better policy or a better news story for the process of argument and growth that we've gone through. The problem is that as we begin to disagree on what constitutes truth, on what constitutes kind of the very baseline of um civility necessary to have conversations, we just begin talking over or around each other and not with each other. Um, So it's very easy now for someone writing for an extremely liberal publication to dismiss someone out of hand based on who they voted for in the last election. Similarly, it is very easy for someone at a very far right-leaning publication to dismiss someone out of hand based on what they say or write or who they voted for. And there's a lot of whataboutism, uh, which is a term I'm sure you've heard, in which we we pick out each other's vices and decide not to advance conversation because they did it and now I'm going to do it or whatever. Um, It's just very toxic, I think, in terms of its impact on our ability to grow as individuals and as a community of thinkers. And so... 
Um, there is a very important question I think we need to be asking going forward about how we grow opportunities for thoughtful discourse, for empathy, how perhaps at the local level we can cultivate the empathy that seems so absent from our national conversation. Because the fact of the matter is, if your neighbor believes something very, very different from you and you disagree with them strongly, you still probably have to see them at least once a week, you know, as you come in and out of your houses or whatever. The person who goes to church with you or sits on the town council with you, regardless of what they believe, you have to see them and interact with them. And so I wonder whether it might force us into this sort of discourse in a way that now on the internet and through our national conversations, we can evade. Um, And it's just, I believe, really important that we do that in order to stretch ourselves in ways that we aren't right now. Um, Yeah, and, and how we continue to build discussion at the national level, I think will just continue to unfold. But I think there are some interesting forms of dialogue happening, even on social media between people who believe very different things. But it can only happen when there is this premise underneath it of of humility, of willingness to learn, of willingness to look beyond the stereotypes that you might hold on that person or their viewpoints um, if we can't get past some of those things, then we won't we won't be able to get anywhere. Do you have any voices that you really respect in kind of navigating this world of polarization? Well, I I have a set of writers that I really love to read who come from all different backgrounds. I think. Um, but who just write with a lot of nuance and honesty and and thoughtfulness. And um, some people who are conservatives who I always appreciate are Ross Douthat for the New York Times, Michael Brendan Dougherty for National Review. Um, Barbara McClay writes for Hedgehog Review and writes wonderful think pieces about a variety of really deep topics without any sort of partisan bent. Um, I wouldn't even be able to tell you exactly what her politics are, but it doesn't matter. She's just excellent at what she writes. Um, I've really appreciated Elizabeth Brunig, who is writing for The Post and is now writing for The New York Times, as someone who just presents very excellent, thoughtful arguments for what she believes. But she is someone who politically is far more progressive than I was raised to be. And so she's challenged me on a lot of good topics in a lot of very, very good ways. Um, Emma Green's articles for The Atlantic are always excellent, and I've learned a lot from her as well about um, topics that she writes about from a viewpoint that I see is always fair and very nuanced and thoughtful as well. Uh, Those are off the top of my head. There's more, I'm sure, but um, those are just some that come to mind as we discuss. Uh, Jeff Spross, also for the week, he writes about the economy from a much more progressive angle than I have historically had, and I always appreciate his takes and think that they're very smart and thoughtful, and I've learned a lot from him as well. Um, Now, as a Christian and a conservative you know, it's been a weird world since 2015. Um, and, and there's been sort of a split, as you know, somewhat of a civil war <laughs> inside of this group that we're both a part of. How have you kind of watched that play out, the divisions that have, have happened among conservatives regarding President Trump? And, um, you know, I guess just what what have your thoughts been watching that happen? And, and how do you see a way forward uh, in the future? It is really interesting and sometimes worrying. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Just kind of the schisms break out, I guess. Um, I think we are hopefully going to learn a lot from them. I think we have a lot to still learn from everything that's been happening. I think that conservatism and republicanism have not always actually been a very good match for Mm -hmm. each other that they are often very different things and that within conservatism itself, there are a variety of um, just different beliefs. You could even call them sects, although that's a little too religious, but you know what I mean. There's all these little groups with their sets of ideas and some lean more libertarian and and some lean very progressive. Um, Some are very socially conservative, others aren't at all. And so we have... A lot to learn from each other. And I oftentimes highly doubt that it will ever be as unified as it once was. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I don't think that that's a bad thing either. Um, 
it's very difficult to kind of see what the path forward would be for kind of a way to bring back together all the separate threads that have broken out through this process. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in the future, we see more conservatives aligning themselves with progressives who are, you know, for supporting um, better childcare options, better healthcare options, based on their beliefs on social conservatism. Whereas I could see, you know, a group of more libertarian-minded uh, conservatives aligning themselves with different groups based on their set of beliefs on how the economy should work, how policies should be put in place. So it would be very interesting to see if we came out of this process with a set of voters, a set of thinkers who are very much aligned with kind of a very unique set of progressives when it comes to advancing certain social issues regarding the poor, the disenfranchised, the, the young, the unborn, that we might not have seen if none of this had happened. So I, I don't know. It's a really interesting time to be watching what's happening in politics. And I don't think that we're close to seeing the dust settle. So right. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what 2020 is like. Now, as a, do you have any advice? I know you're on a panel coming up about being a Christian and news media consumption. What kind of thoughts do you have about how you navigate politics as a Christian, you know? Well, I'm still working on <laughs> this one. It's a complicated topic. I got asked to speak on this panel, oh, a, a year, almost a year ago, and I'm still just mulling over everything just because it's a very complicated and difficult question. Um, but I think that some of the struggles that we are facing in our time, uh, these disagreements over what is true and false, you know, what what is fake news has been the question of the last few years. What is credible? What is trustworthy? What is not? Um, these have oftentimes fractured our conversation and even made some people doubt their own ability to know what is true, which can be a very scary and frustrating thing. Um, if there's no agreement on which voices we can trust on what truth is, how can we make the decisions we need as voters, as neighbors, as um, citizens, as churchgoers? And so this is kind of the question I'm really grappling with. And thankfully, as a Christian, I do believe we can use the scriptures for guidance um, that there are a set of truths that we can hold to, even as the moment that we might live in has a lot of unknown about it, that we can ground ourselves on what we know to be true. Um, and I really believe that the principles of charity and humility and grace can help us move forward and cultivate that dialogue that helps us seek truth together and show respect to each other as we struggle with the moment that we're in. Um, a verse that I think a lot about as I read the news is from Philippians, in which Paul suggests that we should meditate on what is true, what is noble, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, of good report, virtuous and praiseworthy. He says, meditate on these things. And so to some degree, as a reader and consumer of news, I have tried to learn how to read certain things that might be um, unkind, vicious, uh, evil, unhappy, and um, read them and then leave them behind uh, and not carry them with me through the day. That can be a huge struggle as a Christian, but I think it's important to not let ourselves dwell on what will then make us um, unable to do what God is calling us to do in the day to day. Um, and then also to consider what are the stories, what are the ideas that I need to meditate on, to pray over in order to ask for guidance, for truth, for wisdom uh, as a citizen or as a neighbor, or as someone who is a writer as well. Yeah, it is. It is a very layered topic. You could. <laughs> that's why they're having a whole conference about it. <laughs> <laughs> but we squeezed a few a few bits of wisdom here in five minutes. Um, okay, so we're getting towards the end, but I want to ask you, I know that you love to bake and garden, and I would just love to know, I'm, I've never gardened myself, but you know, what do you love about it, and what do you think you learn from 
working with the earth and growing your own food about life and about yourself and, and just what is your thought process around it? Mm. Uh, there's so much beauty in working in a garden that I have discovered. I got to help out my parents a lot. When I was little, we had a big vegetable garden, and then my mom also had a lot of plants that required regular care, like roses that I had to help prune. Um, always hated deadheading roses as a kid, and now I want roses, which tells you, you just, you put up with the work because they're so beautiful. Um, and uh, so I helped with a lot of things like that, a lot of weeding, um, a lot of yard work, raking, pulling weeds, planting, watering. Um, and it taught me a lot about diligence, about pushing myself when I'm tired, about um, the pride you feel when you grow something that then you can put on your dining room table. There's nothing like that feeling um, because it's really kind of miraculous. It's the most incredible science project when you take this teeny tiny tomato seed and you plant it in the earth and then it grows up and then it turns into this huge bush that can get as tall as you are and produce hundreds of tomatoes, um, many of which you can then carry inside, create food out of, eat, and then you put the rest of it in compost, which goes back in the garden. You save some of the seeds and you grow it again the next year. Um, it's just insane when you think about it. And I think a glorious picture of the mystery of the earth that we live in. Um, so there's a lot of joy and pride and fun in watching a lot of that alchemy happen. Um, and there's a lot of good habits that it builds in yourself. And then, you know, as my daughters get older, I'd like to get them involved. They learn so much about what certain plants are and how they grow and how to take care of them, what stewardship looks like, um, what is good to eat and what is bad to eat, you know, being able to recognize poisonous plants and edible plants, uh, being able to know how compost works and, and why it matters how we can take the scraps of our table and turn them into soil that feeds and nourishes the ground. It's it's all pretty insane and really fun, for me at least, because it's a constant education. Um, I learn more every year, and I can tell you I've had some really bad gardening years, and I make so many rookie mistakes because um, I spent a lot of time in an apartment and in a college dorm, and um, oftentimes, even as a kid, I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have, so I make a lot of mistakes, and I have to learn and grow from them, and so each year, it's fun to see the garden get maybe a little better and then to try new things and see if they tank or if they do well. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. What are some of your favorite things to grow and then to bake with some of those foods? Mm -hmm. Well, it's always fun growing greens because they grow really well. They grow really well in the colder months. And so it's nice to have something that you can be putting on your table, you know, even in um, April or September, you know, depending on what you're what you're growing. Um, it's been a lot of fun to do things like uh, rainbow chard or kale or uh, lettuce that, you know, you wash and then put it in a big bowl and you're eating mouthfuls of something that was grown right outside mm -hmm. your house. Um, I love doing tomatoes, although they're a little finicky and they like specific sorts of soil and they like to be watered certain ways sometimes, but it's fun because when they work and when you get a bumper crop, then you, they're one of the things you can can and preserve and give away. And, um, we've done lots of tomato soup and tomato sauce and, um, salsa and stuff from our tomatoes. And it's so fun to see all the different ways that you can use them. Um, I really like growing beets and radishes too, just because their colors are gorgeous. It's fun to really grow a colorful garden, to have a lot of different things in it that bring different texture and color to your plate and to your um, outside space as well. So, yeah. Oh, one question I was going to ask you before we get to our end of podcast was, um, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about your daughters and obviously they're the the priority in your life. How do you structure your days um, as a mom? And, you know, what does sort of your day look like um, as a mom and as a writer? 
Mm. Well, it changes too. <laughs> that seems to be my thing. Oh, it depends. <laughs> no, it, what I've realized is that as my daughters get older, I have to be flexible. Um, my oldest daughter is now, she used to sleep till about 7, 7.30. So I would have, I would get up really early around 5, 5.30 and I'd have two hours to work before she woke up. But now she wakes up around 6.15, 6.30 and <laughs> I've realized that she really needs that mommy time before her sister's up and the day begins. She loves to cuddle with me on the couch, um, but she also likes to talk during that time. So I can do certain things. I can kind of check the news. I can um, work on my planner, my schedule a little bit while she's awake, but I can't do as many things as I used to. So that morning time has shifted from what it was to something more flexible now. I always use their nap time to get work done, even if there's laundry to be done, even if the floors are a mess. Um, I recently moved my desk and computer into our guest room upstairs just because it's a space in the house that I can keep very clean and empty and I can close that door and it's private. So I'm that sort of person where if the house is chaotic, I have a really hard time concentrating. So having one room in the house that I know will be clean and empty and quiet um, to work in if I need to has been really helpful because it means that when they go down, I close that door and I just work for as long as I can. And I don't worry about anything else that needs to be done. I just focus on what I have in front of me. Um, and that's been really important for me. There's always at least one or two days a week where I'll set work aside in order to accomplish other things, be it gardening, landscaping, mowing, um, housework inside, uh, projects related to community that I want to do. Um, I think it's important to have one or two days where you're able to say, okay, I just, I'm going to focus my energies now on these other things that I am a steward of. But uh, for the most part throughout the week, I use that afternoon nap time. And then um, once my girls go to bed, if I have more work that I need to do, then I'll use the evenings. Um, and then every Wednesday, I have a very wonderful young woman in the local community come over and babysit my girls for four to five hours so that I can do my interviews on that day. I can have concentrated writing time, um, anything that's difficult to do <laughs> if I'm going to be interrupted, that all gets crammed into Wednesday. And that's been a really useful exercise as well. And you have really good boundaries around social media as well. Can you just talk briefly about what kind of kind of boundaries you set? Mm. Well, I have tried to limit my usage of it. I think Twitter is the one I like using most, and so that's the one I generally have to be most careful of in terms of time. Because um, I think Instagram and Facebook I've enjoyed, but less and less so the older I get. Um, whereas Twitter, I know enough people on there. I like the style of it enough. It's much more easy to become addicted to it. Um, but I try not to pull it up on my phone or to use any of that while my daughters are awake. Um, and I can look at Twitter and stuff if I'm working in the afternoons. But if I have stuff I need to get done, I try to turn it all off insofar as I can. Um, I really try to be careful about just how much I am sharing about my daughters as well on social media. It's something that I'm still working on in my brain and um, kind of considering and praying about, but I've just wanted them to be able to create their own social media experience once they get old enough to do it and to not, you know, have already kind of plastered their faces all over the internet yeah. if they if they end up not wanting that as adults. Um, so that's kind of a boundary I have tried to set. I'll still share funny things that they do every once in a while, but I just try to be careful of that because obviously they're still too young to have any say in what they want with the internet in their lives. So anyways, those are a few boundaries that I've kind of worked on in terms of both time and what I share. Okay, I've got a few end of the podcast questions. First one is, if you could have dinner or drinks with anybody, who would it be and why? Mm, could it, does, do they have to be alive? No. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I would say Jane Austen. Okay. I, 
feel like she would have so much wit and mirth and wisdom to share. And I have always had so much awe for the way in which she told beautiful, thoughtful, virtuous stories. Um, It would be wonderful to talk to her and pick her brain about writing and hear more about her life than we currently know, just based on all of the information that was... uh, Her sister burned a lot of her letters when Mm. she died. So there's still a lot we don't know about her. And I think that would be amazing so yeah Jane Austen would be my pick (laughs) okay I'm sure you're not the only one that would would choose that um what is a goal that you would have that you have for yourself in the next five to ten years something you'd like to accomplish that's a long time it is it is (laughs) um that's a really good question I so this sounds funny I would love to have chickens and maybe (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to have chickens and, you know, um, raise some of our own eggs. Um, I'd love to be more involved in the local community to just be able to even write more regionally. Uh, That's something I've really thought about a lot lately. What does it mean to be a regional writer and why does it matter? And I think it matters hugely. And we see that in the legacy of a lot of regional writers like Wendell Berry or Flannery O'Connor or Walker Percy. Um, So anyways, I've been thinking a lot about that and I'd love to be more involved in doing that sort of writing in the future. Um, Maybe write another book someday if I feel up to it. What's the deal with your book right now? It is in the editing process, so we're getting there. I think we're pretty close to done, hopefully. You know, it's just always a matter of getting things just right. And so it's been wonderful. It's also been very, very difficult to do with two very young girls. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know that this book also has been a challenge because of the intricacy of how it's structured. And so um, even though I have felt pretty tired and exhausted at various points writing it, I'm very happy with it. I'm proud to send it out into the world. And I'm trying not to let myself say that I will never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you. Yeah, just give it a few months. You'll 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 start thinking otherwise. Now, do you have a title and uh, can you tell us who's publishing it and when it will be out? No title yet. Um, that's still under discussion um, because, you know, it's just a process of finding the right one. Mm-hmm. Lots of different ideas, but just kind of looking for the right title idea. And it's being published through Sentinel Publishing, um, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. And I believe that it will tentatively be out in spring 2021 or somewhere thereabouts. But um, I don't have a very set date for you as of yet. And it's about localism, right? It's about the farm community where I grew up. So it's a very focused look. Once again, talking about regional writing, um, it kind of considers what's been happening in agricultural and rural America through the lens of one town and its growth and its struggles and its decay and maybe its transformation in years to come. Um, And so I do a lot of delving into the history of this farm town and then a lot of interviews with the people living there and farming there now. And so it has been a huge passion project and I'm so, so excited for people to read it and I hope that they like it. So yeah. That's exciting. That's so exciting. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of books, last question. Um, I always want love to get book recommendations, something you've read recently that you could recommend. And then if you, if you happen to listen to any podcasts, what do you recommend in that realm? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm finishing Furious Hours by Casey Sepp. And it's the story of the true crime um, book that Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, started, and she never finished it. And it is just a fantastic piece of narrative nonfiction journalism. And I have loved every page. So I highly recommend that. Um, Also, Chris Arnotti's book, Dignity, was my top read pick of 2019. It is just a truly heart-wrenching, beautiful book about what Arnotti refers to as back row places in America, the places that just have lost jobs, wealth, 
um, community and have really struggled. And yet he tells the stories of the people in these places with just so much warmth and respect and beauty um, and takes some fantastic photographs as well. And so I think it's a must read book. Yes, I read that and I did a review on it too. And I, I thought it was awesome. Yes. So those are my two book picks. Um, For podcasts, I love listening to the Strong Towns podcast that Chuck Marone and the people at the organization at uh, Strong Towns do. It's a wonderful look at a lot of these localism issues. Um, And then actually, as a mother, I have loved the podcast At Home with Sally, which is by a Christian woman named Sally Clarkson, who's um, a little bit older and farther along in life and just gives some fantastic mothering parenting advice to people who have little ones or even kids in their teens. It's it's kind of a all-purpose consideration of what it means to love your children well. And it encourages me every single time I listen to it. Oh, I'll have to try that. Did she also write this children's storybook Bible? Uh, no, I don't think so. But oh, that- I'm thinking of. That's a different <laughs> Sally, I think, maybe. Yeah another Sally. I I (laughs) like that Bible. It's a good Bible. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I love it. Okay, Gracie. Well, we have gone over an hour, so sorry about that. But thank you so much for taking time out of your babysitting day to do this interview with me because, you know, I'm I got a babysitter now too. So we're in the same, same position. Um, (laughs) But I just, I really appreciate it. And it was really great catching up with you. You too. Thanks so much for having me. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.